Hi, I'm Stephanie Van Latke, and welcome to Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. On this episode, I'm joined by my co-host Steve Saidman to talk about Canadian election debates on foreign policy, as well as Turkish military operations in Syria, which are putting the U.S. and NATO in a tight spot. Then we turn to an interview with Harleen Atwal from Simon Fraser University to talk about the NATO Field School, an experiential learning opportunity for students. Our feature interview is with Alice Pagny from the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies to talk about European security issues. And lastly, Steve Spieve this week is on the balancing act that many companies and countries face when dealing with China. So, Stephanie, not much happening in the world today. I mean, what's going on in Europe? Anything interesting? The Ukraine plot thickens in the United States as folks continue to testify in the impeachment inquiry. It's like the stuff of movies or a drama series, really, when you look at who's going through the House Intelligence Committee testimonies. There's so much material. I think the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, testified for something like nine hours. And Fiona Hill, who works in Russia stuff, was on Trump's National Security Council, and she was testifying for something like 10 hours yesterday about Giuliani's role in all of this. And it's just looking uglier and uglier and swampier and swampier. But this was almost, almost overshadowed by Turkey's invasion of Syria. Indeed. People have been asking us, what does this mean for NATO? Do you think that Turkey can get kicked out of NATO? Uh, I was thinking about that too, what it means for NATO, what it means for Canada. And so I was looking at what was said out there. The NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, expressed some concerns, but he was super vague. He was vague booking, one might say. My favorite quote from him since this Friday is this one, I'm deeply concerned and what has happened has just underpinned and underscored those concerns. So there's not much specific when it comes to what NATO might do or what NATO can do. I don't think we can really expect concerted action. What we'll see is individual allies taking some specific measures. France and Germany want to stop arms sales to Turkey. Canada has already taken steps to do so. Trump is now calling on economic sanctions that could, as he says, swiftly destroy Turkey's economy. And Belgium is asking for a ceasefire. And the list goes on, really. I'm just waiting for President Trump to tweet that this is all President Truman's fault because he's responsible <laughs> for the first wave of NATO enlargement back in 1952. And that's when Turkey became an ally in the first place. Well, I think it is all Truman's fault. <laughs> But the strange thing, of course, is that this is all Trump's fault since Trump was the one who gave Erdogan the green light last week and then immediately contradicted that. So one of the things this is obviously showing is that the U.S. foreign policy process itself is incoherent because as soon as Trump tweeted out the green light, you had folks from state and defense, including the new secretary of defense, Esper, pushing against this, saying that, no, this is not what we want. But the reality has been that American troops are pulling out uh, after facing artillery fire from Turkey. Uh, so they're they're moving away that ISIS prisons have been Uh, they've had prison breaks at these prisons. So we have ISIS people, including high profile ones, high value targets that the Americans were watching. They're now on their own. 
And so we're seeing exactly the kinds of things that people predicted about what would happen if Turkey invaded Syria to fight the Kurds in Syria. It's leading to ISIS getting some new opportunities, new breath of fresh air uh, to maybe reemerge. It's getting the United States to look really bad since it's on both sides of this decision now. So it's it's a really an unforced error that uh, the Trump did by giving Erdogan, the the leader of Turkey, the go ahead and the only real winner in all this is Putin. But I wonder how has the U.S. been put in this no-win situation? The very thought of the U.S. not being able to deter Erdogan from invading Syria just shows what a mess American policy in the Middle East has become. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised though. We can't forget who Trump's advisor is on the Middle East. It's Jared Kushner. And don't forget Trump's first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was on the payroll of the Turks when he was national security advisor. So this is not a new thing in terms of Turkey having strange amount of influence in the Trump administration. Uh, Hillary Clinton during the election cited this exact situation as possible, noting that Trump would be more concerned about the profits related to the Trump Hotel in Istanbul than about what is best for American foreign policy. And, and so this gets to a larger problem, which is that Trump thinks of U.S. foreign policy as his interests, not the national interests. And, and so it's striking that you see the Republicans who haven't pushed back on Trump on many things are much more upset about this decision than the stuff going on in Ukraine. And I've just been sort of surprised by the statements coming out of the Trump administration, although at this point, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised about anything. But just the U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, Mark Esper, who was doing the media rounds over the past few few days and saying stuff like, oh, well, 50 service members are not going to stop a Turkish advance or, you know, we tried to push back on this. We tried very, very hard. Turkey and the U.S. are NATO allies. The possible death of one U.S. soldier should be enough to deter Turkey and for it to proceed with extreme caution. So as you said earlier, you know, this 15,000 strong Turkish advances plowing through and the Pentagon saying American troops narrowly escaped artillery fire in Kobani is, uh, you know, really a bizarre situation. And of course, we can't forget that there's some number of nuclear weapons in Insulak, Turkey, which is an Air Force base that the U.S. has used to base these weapons for decades, there's always been discussion for removing them. And now there's a panic discussion, apparently, this weekend about how to get these weapons out because, yes, they're in vaults and, yes, they are protected. But Turkey is now a very unreliable ally. So you really want to have these nuclear weapons lying around in their country. Yeah. And every time Turkey misbehaves, the topic of these weapons flares up again. I would have much preferred that we discussed the potential removal of these weapons when things were nice and calm, uh, like in, in 2009, maybe 10 years ago. And then that's a good time where we can discuss removing the, the weapons. But talking about removing the, the American nuclear uh, weapons from Turkey in a moment of crisis, I think, is not the right time. No, there's, this is not a good time for that, but it, it is a time for that topic to arise once again. Hopefully things will settle down at some point and that situation can be resolved. I'm just wondering if there are any good options because uh, we, we, we keep on complaining. But just seriously, are there any good options in this crisis? Previous attempts at mediating a deal between Turkey and the Kurds failed. Trump is now brandishing this route as a new idea. But, you know, they tried before. What are what options were left? Well, that's a really good question, because, I mean, the sad thing is, is that the Turks and the Kurds were, not, were pretty close to agreement 
I think about seven or eight years ago, and, and uh, since then it's all fallen apart. That is really the solution for the Turkish problem with the Kurds, is to have a negotiated settlement for the Turkey's Kurds, not invading various other countries to find other Kurds to suppress. Turkey sees the Kurds in, in Syria as, as a potential threat because they, as, as if they get their autonomy, that could be used for a base of operations for Turkey's Kurds. Even if that base of operations doesn't exist, they still have a Turkish Kurd problem. And so we need to find some way to negotiate on that. But Erdogan is not leaning that in that way at any time now or in the near future. And the United States' ability to play its role as a neutral arbitrator is, is shot because of the recent events. This is something Canada can promise to do. It could try to be a, a intermediary, but I don't think there's much to, to mediate right now. And so I, I don't see much progress in the near future. Now, we're likely to see something happen, though. There is a defense ministerial next week at NATO. Secretary Esper said that he might call on allies to consider diplomatic and economic measures against Turkey. This is the kind of crisis that could create real problems for NATO. Um, I'll stop short of predicting NATO's demise, though, as uh, people keep doing that. <laughs> but uh, I think that we, we just, you know, getting back to the NATO question you posed earlier, you know, what can NATO do? Uh, are there any NATO procedures for ejecting allies? Uh, and I think this was a question from our listeners, right? If there are any formal procedures mm -hmm. to do so. And I think the answer is no. I don't know if you did uh, any homework on your side. There are precedents for allies threatening to leave or downgrading their membership. France did so in the 60s and Greece undertook similar steps over Cyprus. Both countries eventually reintegrated later. Uh, but when it comes to kicking out an ally or even threatening allies that they might be kicked out if uh, they take a certain course of action. I don't think that that we've really seen that uh, before. I always like to refer back to the Washington Treaty, the original mm -hmm. text for guidance on this. Uh, you do have Article 13 in the founding treaty that says, after the treaty has been enforced for 20 years, any party may cease to be a party one year after its notice of denunciation has been given to the government of the United States of America, which will inform the, go the governments of the other party of the deposit of each notice of denunciation. Wow, that is a mouthful. But essentially it means that, uh, you know, if an ally wants out, it has to give notice. And then after one year, it just gracefully exits. But there's nothing in there, uh, not even in the accession protocols for new members that specifies any instructions on how to terminate a membership. So I think that what would need to happen is for all allies, except the, the ally in question that uh, whose membership might be terminated, would be for all allies to agree by consensus to get rid of the recalcitrant states. Uh, and short of that, I don't think there's an option, procedurally speaking. And th there is no procedure, and you mentioned the magic word, which is consensus, which means that you need to get all the allies to agree, or at least all of them to agree not to disagree. And one can imagine several countries thinking, well, they might be next. And so I think that there would be a lot of pushback to set a precedent. And so you can imagine Hungary, you can imagine well, I would say Greece, but not in this case. But you can imagine Hungary and you can imagine some other countries that are a little you know, worried about them being targeted that would break consensus and say, no, we can't do this. So I just can't imagine, even if there were a procedure, it would require consensus. I just can't imagine them ever getting consensus on kicking a country out. On the other hand, the other question that we've gotten has been, how does Article 5 apply to this? Because now the Turks are facing some attacks from the Kurds in Syria. And I think the short answer to that is that NATO's Article 5, A, operates by consensus, and so they're not going to get it. And B, it doesn't really apply to situations where one of the countries in NATO attacks another country and then faces counterattacks. I, I don't think Article 5 w was ever intended to 
have any member launch an attack and then demand re- support from the rest of the alliance for when they when they fight some friction after that attack. Yeah, I, I don't think Article 5 is going to get invoked by anybody on this anytime too soon. And, and as I always have to remind people, there's nothing automatic about it. An attack doesn't mean an attack upon one equals an attack upon all. It means NATO has an opportunity to have a decision to invoke that article, but only by consensus. And even if it is invoked, nobody's obligated to do anything because there's an opt-out clause within Article 5. Each country is supposed to respond as each deems necessary, and that can vary quite widely. And I've written a book on that, so just another plug. Well, it's not not an opt-out clause per se, but I agree with what you're saying, that when people refer to Article 5 and collective defense obligations, they're not obligations. They are an invitation for do something in a concerted fashion. And I think that, you know, it would be useful here to read out loud again the original text of Article 5. But it always irks me when people talk about Article 5 obligations. It also irks me when people talk about the Kurds as allies uh, rather than partners. And it irks anybody who studies the area to refer to the Kurds <laughs> as a single group, because not only they're Turkish Kurds and, and Syrian Kurds and Iranian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds, but each of those groups is their own multiple organizations. So they don't act as a single coherent unit. They, they disagree with each other, which is actually a good opportunity for us to point to our featured interview to Alice Peña, a scholar at the School of Advanced International Studies at uh, Johns Hopkins. And she reminds us that Europe itself is not a single actor that is acted upon, but has a variety of interests at at play. Uh, Let's move away from Turkey uh, and the Kurds, and let's focus a little bit on ourselves. The election is next week. Have you voted? I have. I voted on Friday after watching all of the debates. What about you? I have not voted yet. I'm actually going to vote on election day as I'm traveling a lot, but I will be in town for that. So what I want to do is I want to just highlight something for for our audience. The magazine called Diplomat in International Canada has each of the parties listing their five priorities, although liberals actually just sent a couple bland paragraphs. And I was kind of struck by their priorities. So I'm going to read it quickly, uh, just the highlights, and then have you react to them, and then we can talk about it. That the Conservative Party's top five priorities are number one, China, two, Russia and the Arctic, three, Israel, four, Iran, five, religious freedom. The NDP's top five priorities are climate change, disarmament, development, human rights, and then multilateralism and peacekeeping. The Liberals talk about climate change, brighter future for the middle class, free and fair trade, managing international peace. The Greens talk about climate change, global migration, uh, erosion of human rights in the world, achieving UN sustainable development goals, and a ban on nuclear weapons. And finally, the Bloc talk about climate change, resetting trade, multilateralism, tax-based erosion, and giving Quebec access to the world. So what, what is your first reaction to this, given that you're no longer a voter? (laughs) Well, my reaction to a lot of these themes is uh, that I find the the parties deliberately vague on a lot of those issues. And I think part of the reason why that's the case is that when parties uh, take a position on questions from free trade to peacekeeping, I think they're being reluctant in criticizing Trudeau's foreign policy record because anything that they criticize from China, Saudi Arabia to USMCA might be interpreted as an endorsement of Trump's foreign policy. So I think that we're seeing maybe more muted foreign policy positions because I think Trump has an influence on the way that we approach um, these debates in foreign policy. And there's a few issues where I think that we do see genuine disagreements with, with uh, between parties. I think part of uh, what makes 
foreign policy topics fade into the background in Canada is because parties agree on a lot of things when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, but there are certain issues that stand out in my mind. Uh, one of them is the ban on nuclear weapons. So the liberals, obviously, and the conservatives, I don't think would take that position. I think they would prioritize the NATO alliance above all else when it comes to approaching your ban treaty. And Canada certainly, I don't think, would step out and be the first NATO ally to really support the nuclear ban treaty when its NATO allies aren't doing it. And when the NDP talks about disarmament, it's not clear to me what they mean. Now, maybe that's a bit more specific in, in the document you have in your in your hands, but that can mean a whole host of things. Now, I'm less concerned right now about disarmament than I am about arms control and, uh, you know, the extension of a renewed START treaty between Russia and the United States. I think this is of paramount importance for uh, global politics right now. Yeah. So those are my initial reactions. How do you feel when you read this list? <laughs> well, first of all, the disarmament stuff, it kind of drives me crazy that this is a top priority because Canada really doesn't have a role to play in disarmament these days in terms of the nuclear issues. And specifically, this is a time where we're trying to hold the line and try to keep whatever agreements exist in place rather than moving further because Trump is undermining it. He's walking away from the Open Skies Agreement. He's walking away from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreement. And so the problem really isn't about trying to push disarmament further, but trying to protect our gains right now. So I think that's a little bit of a problem. I think it's funny that none of these parties talks about the U.S. as a major foreign policy priority. Clearly, the United States is the most important actor for the Canada, and managing that relationship is the highest priority for Canada. And none of these parties mention it. To be honest, the PPC, the People's Party does, but I don't want to talk about them. I do think it's strange that for the conservatives that Israel and Iran are number three and four, because the last time I checked, we are not a Middle Eastern country. And to put those at the top of the list is very strange. I could think of Canada as being an, an Atlantic country, an Arctic country, a Pacific country, but I don't think of Canada as a, as a Mideast country. And so I find that to be a, a strange priority. I do think that several of the parties are right that climate change is important because it is a global problem and we're not going to get to a solution. If Canada became a perfect non-emitter of carbon, it would still face lots of problems based on what everybody else is doing in the world. So it does make sense to make that an international relations and an even a national security issue. So I, I think, you know, it's clear that each party is playing to its base and what they care about. Hence, NDP cared about disarmament. The bloc talked about giving Quebec access to the world, which basically is trying to give Quebec more treaty-making power, which is kind of funky. But overall, I it, I find that these miss some of the major issues. Uh, and I find that to be a problem that it's clear that this is a bit of pandering to their base interests, which I will also, since I use the word pander, I should mention my peeve coming up is I'm going to talk about everybody pandering to China to get into its marketplace, focusing on the NBA and LeBron James this week. I guess one of the things that came up that people asked us about directly about these priorities is for Andrew Shearer, foreign aid is definitely not a priority but cutting it is. So what are the implications for Canada's role in the world if we cut foreign aid by 25%? I don't know. Just hearing about this proposal gives me that guilty feeling inside. It's not like we're meeting global foreign aid targets right now. And I think we're already pretty stingy. So I'm not keen on this proposal at all. If Canada cannot set aside what is it, $6 billion for countries who are less well off, then we probably don't belong in clubs like the G7. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's fair. You know, what a lot of our problems that are in the world today are due to countries that are having problems with their own stability. And while sending troops around the world is one way to deal with it, another way is to foster development. And while we can debate the effectiveness of development aid, 
cutting off development aid is probably not the way to go about it. We can reconfigure it. We can rethink it. We can try to ascertain what are the best ways to give assistance. Is it better to give it through international organizations? Is it better to give it from state to state? Is it better to give to non-government organizations? What kind of projects should be funded? What kind of conditions should be placed on it? Those are all important questions because it, foreign assistance is, isn't perfect. And a mutual friend of ours, Jessica Trisco-Darden, has a, mm-hmm. a new book out, Aiding and Abetting, which talks about how foreign assistance can actually cause authoritarian leaders to become more empowered rather than less. But Cutting it by 25% is just, that's a happy number. It's a nice, easy number, one quarter. But it doesn't really say anything about real serious plans uh, about how to Canada should interact with the world. And, and indeed, I think it's a lack of seriousness. That's what it signals, because it's just a, a silly number and a silly proposal. And I think the idea of, hey, we need to cut our foreign aid so we can spend money domestically, that's that's a populist stance, but it's not a real stance because there are other ways to spend money domestically without cutting the foreign assistance. Indeed, if you want to have fewer refugees, fewer migrants coming to Canada, one way to do that is to have better development in the rest of the world. So it it just seems to be counterproductive. I I just think the optics of it are incredibly lousy. Yeah, cutting 25% so that Canadian taxpayers can benefit. It just, just doesn't sound right. Today, I'm talking with Harleen Atwal, who is a program manager of the NATO Field School and Simulation Program based at Simon Fraser University. Could you tell us a little bit about the program, Harleen? Yes, Steve. Thank you so much for uh, having me on today. Um, so, yeah, at Simon Fraser University, we're running the program called NATO Field School Simulation Program. Um, and it's in collaboration with the NATO Defense College, as well as Canada's delegation to NATO. Uh, we've successfully been running the program since 2017. Um, adding to it every year Um, and uh, we are now hoping to for the year 2020 open to uh, undergraduate and graduate students from all across NATO member states. Essentially the program brings undergraduate and graduate students from NATO member states together in the summer for seven weeks of real world experience in international relations and diplomacy. Um, This is actually a four credit course, so undergraduate students will gain 12 senior credits and uh, graduate students will earn six political science credits as well. Okay, so how do they get this credit? Uh, Yeah, so it's a a sort of a comprehensive program, I would say. It it has a little bit of everything. Uh, We first begin with about three weeks of classroom learning at uh, SFU Burnaby campus. Uh, here in British Columbia, um, and we'll also attend field studies to observe military military training in Western Canada. So we'll visit uh, CFB Cold Lake in uh, Alberta, as well as uh, CFB Esquite Mall just uh, on the island here. It's open to any sort of student that's interested in a, uh, in a diplomacy sort of field or global affairs, political science students or international studies uh, students. Um, so the classroom learning is designed to make sure everyone has a basic level of understanding of about NATO, about the Canadian Armed Forces, um, as well as just uh, basic political science terms. Then, uh, new to 2020 is we're adding a week in Ottawa where uh, students will travel to the decision makers in Ottawa and attend briefings at uh, Department of National Defense, Global Affairs Canada, and Canadian Joint Operations Command. After about four weeks here in Canada, we'll head over to Europe, starting off with a one week in Brussels where students will get the opportunity to engage and interact with NATO and European Union experts and diplomats with visits to NATO headquarters, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, or SHAPE, which is the military command of NATO, 
Uh, we'll also visit the European Union military staff headquarters and the European External Action Services. So this is all in Belgium. Then um, we'll go to Latvia for one weekend. Uh, we'll visit the multinational NATO mission led by the Canadian Battle Group. Uh, so get some briefings with the Latvian Ministry of Defense, visit Task Force Latvia headquarters, as well as NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence in Latvia as well. Final week um, is in Rome, where we head to NATO Defense College. And here students receive a specialized hands-on negotiation um, and diplomatic training from NATO officials, where they are simulating a four-day crisis management scenario. Um, and that's kind of our highlight is this NATO Defense College uh, simulation, because this course is usually reserved for senior officials and officers, but our students are getting a condensed version of this course. Uh, so and, there's a lot to it. <laughs> and you've done this course, so what was your favorite part of the experience? That's a great question. Um, I'm very biased here. I enjoy all of it, but I would definitely say my highlight is um, NATO Defense College. It's actually really neat to visit NATO headquarters as well, because um, as, as a civilian student, it's kind of an unparalleled opportunity to be hearing from international staffers, hearing experts in their field. So for instance, cybercrime and hearing how NATO is approaching these uh, very important uh, security uh, situations occurring in our in our world today and actually engaging with them and having intimate conversations. I guess my favorite activity was the simulation in Rome, uh, but the highlight for me is to have these uh, or to develop a relationship with these professionals who I wouldn't have access to otherwise. And how does one apply? Um, it's very simple uh, that you can just uh, visit our website, um, sfu.ch slash politics slash NATO field school. And the application deadline is January 31st. The program is set to begin um, next year, May. Fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing this, the story of this. I really want to crash not just the Ottawa experience, which maybe I can crash. I just like to go on this entire thing. It sounds <laughs> like a great, great yes. trip. Thank you, Steve. We'd love to have you as well. Thank you so much for this opportunity. So my name is Alice Panier. I'm an assistant professor in uh, international relations in European studies at the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies in DC. And so you are a French woman trained in UK and France, right? So yeah, I was trained mostly in France and uh, partly in the in the UK to train my PhDs from Sciences Po in Paris. And how long have you been in Washington? I've been in DC for two years now. Since you are a foreigner in DC. What do the Americans get wrong about Europe? What are the things that you hear about in the sort of discourse in Washington, D.C.? And I'm not talking just about this administration, but generally, as people talk about Europe, well, what do they get wrong? So what, one thing that I've really been struck by is, so I work on defense, security, strategic issues. So obviously, the type of types of events that I go to deal with these issues, right? But what I've been really finding surprising, and it comes from either side, if you like, of the political spectrum, is the vision of Europe as a military theater like a plane that leads to Russia, and that doesn't give much agency to Europeans. I mean, you know, I'm French, right? So in France, we, we sort of want to punch above our weight, and we're convinced that we can make a big difference in the world as a country, or like governments tend to, French governments tend to be convinced by that, which I'm not necessarily, but there is a difference between thinking that you can change the world because you're France and there is the goal and everything, and there is, uh, you know, on the other hand, not giving any agency to a whole continent because of lack of some military power. I mean, there is not enough military power for Europe as a whole compared to other regions of the world, maybe. But 
political agency, you know, the fact of having ideas and having interests that you want to defend, it's something that I, I think Washington really has still problems admitting. And there is still very, very much a desire in Washington across the board to manipulate Europeans, to make them take certain positions, abandon certain policies that are unfavorable to Washington. And the thing is that it used to work like easily this way uh, because of the security dependency of Europe on the US. But with the Trump presidency, the current administration gets wrong is that, and I think they probably know it, right? But still, they, they don't seem to really act according to that fact is that the value-based leadership, this kind of like enlightened uh, liberal leadership is no longer working because mm -hmm. the US is not acting according to those values anymore, right? So what unites, what unites Europe and the US in terms of transatlantic um, liberal values seems to be, to be increasingly weak. But obviously, the, the U.S. administration is also playing with this to use one European against another and, and sort of divide and rule, which is dangerous. But no, the, the most general fact, and again, that's like across the spectrum, is Europe is a military theater leading to Russia. They don't have much agency, and we don't trust them to do the right thing anyway. So they should just do like we, like we say. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that, because some of this is not that new. I, was, I do think it's striking, uh, the way you put it, that... Europe is seen as a, a theater or an arena mm -hmm. and not as individual actors or a collective actor that needs to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it's hard to take Europe seriously these days when the British are doing their best to, to undermine their own interests and everybody else's. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question now is, as an expert on, on European security is, what are your thoughts on how Brexit is going to impact NATO, EU, st security in Europe generally? about taking Europe seriously, I mean, if you look at other regions of the world, no region is doing very well. <laughs> like, honestly, there is, like, problems in leadership, problems in, you know, political orientations across the globe. And I think we have expectations about Europe that are very high, you know, because it's this big peace project and everything, right? And it's supposed to be the most advanced democracies and economies and everything, and then suddenly they don't do things exactly right then uh, it's weird. And at the same time, if they do things right, then we think, you know, they come from Venice and they haven't understood the relatives of the world, right? So now we see, uh, you know, nationalism on the rise and things like that, and, and uh, each one fending for, their, for themselves, especially vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. with Trump, right? Everyone is, like, fought, fought Trump in Poland and things like that. Everyone is trying to secure their own, uh, their own bilateral relationship with the U.S. And so they're acting... A, they're acting in, in nationalistic or at least um, uncoordinated fashion uh, on, on many levels, just like the rest of the world. You know, it's sad we can complain about this. We shouldn't say they're any worse than, than, than any other parts of the world. And, uh, and Brexit is obviously a tra tragedy. And I mean, you know, I finished my PhD. I submitted the PhD, which is on UK-France uh, bilateral defense cooperation. On, in, in May 2016, and when I defended my thesis just a month and a half later, uh, it was just one week after the Brexit vote, so it was obviously a surprise, we can even say a strategic surprise, for, European, for Europe and for European security, if we talk about that aspect in particular. And uh, yet, now it's been three years since the vote, and we still have no clue uh, what's coming up. Future, what we can talk about is what, it's, what it has changed already in the past three years. And looking at this in particular in terms of the UK's engagement uh, with Europe, with European security and with the world, 
some things remain unchanged, right? So you have something like the Scripple poisoning, where then you see, you know, very good coordination of the UK with its allies, both in Europe and in, in America, to take measures against Russia. Good solidarity. And this type of, we stand together and we, you know, we support one another if one is attacked, is remaining and will remain in the future. What is harder, and I mean, again, like the UK is still in the P5, it's in NATO, so when it comes to some hard security stuff or like big international security issues, there, there is the same opportunities to coordinate and, and, and stand side by side with, with allies. Uh, what is more difficult is obviously in terms of political cooperation with the UK, making plans about, say, industrial cooperation, procure, joint procurement projects or things like that. It's very difficult because... First, we obviously still don't know what's going to be the regulatory environment for the UK once it is out. How is the border going to be, the maritime border between, between the UK and France, or again, like the border in, in, in Ireland and, and Northern Ireland? Are we going to have a free movement of goods, which also obviously has a, an impact on uh, whether you can develop joint military equipment, uh, which was one of the big plans of the French uh, Franco-British uh, defense cooperation. So that's obviously a big question mark. And that's one of the reasons why for the future of combat aviation so far. I mean, there was a big Franco-British project and is it's been, I mean, pretty much abandoned at this point mm. or put on hold at least and France has turned to Germany because the UK, first, we don't know about the re future regulatory environment, but also we don't know what the defense project is going to look like because this is going to depend on the UK's uh, economy and, and this economy is going to depend on the rest of the Brexit process. So everything is tied together. And then, in terms of political instability and political positioning, the problem is, yes, the UK can still coordinate with allies, Europeans and others, within the UN Security Council, within NATO, etc. but the voice of the UK is very, very weak at the moment, and even they have a hard time taking positions on strategic issues because they don't know who they're going to have to rely maybe more in the future, you know, how do you position yourself vis-a-vis China, I mean, vis-a-vis -vis China, they seem to, you know, they, they're conducting this kind of freedom of navigation operations mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia, so the, South China Sea, so they're, they're still very active, right? But on many levels, much less than they used to be. They don't really, even in sitting in DC, I was really surprised to see how weak, how weak their, their voice is. And, uh, and they're, they're sitting in between, you know, Europe, with whom they share a number of ideas on certain international dossier and Washington with whom they share certain other views, for example, a harsher position on Russia mm -hmm. compared to say France and Germany, but also are, are so interdependent, if not dependent on, on Washington, uh, with whom they can be very, very uncomfortable on other dossiers such as Iran, obviously, or, or the like. So the UK's positioning is really, is really somewhere in, in between. We don't know, you know, what sort of role they're going to be able to play in the future, but they're much weaker and they're probably going to remain weak for a few, for a few years to, to come. And meanwhile, the other Europeans, you know, they do whatever they can, uh, are much more focused in terms of security with the Trump administration than with the UK's role, because in the end, uh, the UK's situation is almost the UK's problem. It doesn't affect European security as much as British security. Most European countries, especially in the north and center and east of Europe are more concerned about the Trump administration and what they're doing in Europe than with London. Well, that's, that's fair. And, and one of the big changes in my mind is that Britain had always been so good about 
being very strategic about using its ability to coordinate to actually get everybody else to do its bidding. And now to see it being sort of left behind, it's kind of like at NATO headquarters these days. I, it used to be that the U.S. drove NATO policy agenda, but I'm not sure that staff office is, is occupied in the State Department or even in the Pentagon these days. And so when you see NATO have a, a summit coming up or whatever, the question is who's pushing these agendas because the usual players are simply either not there or are too busy uh, shooting themselves in the foot to be thinking about what they want NATO to do next. And I guess that may be one thing that separates NATO from the EU because the, the from my outside perspective, it always seemed that the British were always dragging the feet. And, and as uh, one of the speakers today, Stephanie Hoffman, suggested, that with the British out, you're taking away sort of the biggest impediment to making improvements in European defense cooperation. Yeah, so that's absolutely true in terms of what ha has occurred over the past three years. Uh, so many different initiatives have been launched from the European Defense Fund to the permanent structure of cooperation to increasing the budget of the European Defense Agency to this new coordinated annual review on defense and, and other decisions. Um, so, interestingly, the UK was blocking progress on PESCO, the permanent structure of cooperation, as well as this uh, small military headquarter, military planning uh, capability center or something like that, which have been launched as like as part of a seizing a window of opportunity type of situation after, after mid-2016. But the UK was not necessarily blocking on, on everything else. They were not blocking the European Defence Fund because it, could, because it could have benefited their own national defence industry. So mm -hmm. even when they were in the EU and the European Defence Fund was, if you like, in the pipes since like 2014, mm -hmm. since uh, Jean-Claude Juncker came to, became the, to become the Commission's president, and uh, Mogherini was also very forceful in pushing all those defence uh, aspects because, not because of the Brexit, but because of the security situation in Europe and the role of Russia after the Crimea uh, and um, Eastern Ukraine uh, crisis, so to speak, and in the context as well of the migration crisis. Plus, then the wave of terrorist attacks in Europe uh, in 2015. So many of those policies were already in the pipes. And the permanent structure of cooperation is thanks to Brexit, so to speak, because the UK were indeed vetoing this. But at the same time, most of the projects that have been launched with the PESCO were already also in the pipes of, mm. among the countries mm -hmm. that are now involved in those PESCO projects. They would have done it intergovernmentally outside of the EU anyway, if you see what I mean. So it's, very, it's important. It's important to show um, European solidarity, dynamism of the mm. European integration process, but uh, it's not going to provide many new capabilities in the short term. Mm -hmm. What would be more important would be a real increase of defense budgets across Europe, which is not happening, including in countries like Germany, where there, there has been a... But Trump is claiming credit for everybody now doing much more on defense. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you can not force to care about Trump so much, right? Uh, he's going to take credit for anything anyway, right? So you'd rather have him take credit than him blaming again, like, sure. constantly, because there is a good reason to blame the Europeans. And I think uh, the Europeans have been dependent on the US for too long. And that, I mean, the French have been saying this forever, right? That you should not rely on an external power to ensure your own security. How can you prove that they're going to be reliable when you need them? And right now they have been proved reliable. They have even under Trump increased the budget of the European Defense Initiative, but still, you know, who knows, you know, with the Russia dossier and others, if you can really, really count on them, right? Plus, 
with the PESCO, but that's more to do with the Trump administration, I mm -hmm. think. You know, the reaction of the Trump administration to PESCO and the European Defense Fund being, you can't do this to us because we are outside, you know, they're outside of the of those mechanisms, and for good reason, because this is supposed to increase cooperation among EU member states, right? Not across NATO member states. And what was the last time the United States bought a ship or a plane from a builder in Europe? Well, these types of platforms, I'm not sure they even ever did it. No, that's a, that's right. the point, is that... Yeah. Is that the, there the would be symmetry. Yes, and, and Trump wants to maintain every asymmetry that's in his favor exactly. and doesn't like anything that's symmetrical because that looks to him to be asymmetrical. Right. So um, so I think it's very right. On the, I mean, the European Defense Fund is a, is a necessary step, not only vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., but also vis-a-vis -vis other powers uh, in Asia, in the Middle East, where there is defense industry or there is increasingly going to be defense industry in the future and there's going to be new competitors against Europe and you want also to you want to protect against competition but you also want to protect your um, your um, production chains mm -hmm. right and and there are some sectors of the economy that are strategic they need to protect and I mean if it's not defense then what are you going to protect right so I'm curious, uh, from a Canadian perspective, it seems like Canada has felt it like it's alone when it gets smacked around by either Saudi Arabia or China. And I'm, I'm curious as to why... I can understand why the British aren't really doing anything right now because they're paralyzed by their own mistakes. But I think Canadians would like to know why the French and the Germans haven't spoken up when the Saudis have sanctions against Canada because they said something about the Saudi Arabian human rights problems. Mm. Or recently, with the whole extradition mess with China, China's now been taking prisoners, literally taking prisoners, and now is threatening to cut off all kinds of markets for Canada. And the Canadians are wondering, why is nobody sticking up for us? I don't know about these particular dossiers, if you like, involving Canada, but it seems to me that whether it is Saudi Arabia or China we're talking about, these are one, some of those very, very strategic players regarding whom each country is going to walk a fine line, a very fine line that is that tends to be nationally defined in terms of what we would like to be doing ideally in terms of like defending human rights and things like that versus what we can afford to do strategically. Both countries have very, very big leverages that they can use, right? And so it's difficult to show solidarity where you don't want it to have repercussions on your own strategic partnership or strategic relationship with those countries. Well, to put it... I'm well, not saying this is good. I'm saying this is probably how they are thinking. I understand. I guess the bigger question in terms of European strategic thinking is that the United States is relatively declining, Trump or no Trump. China's increasing relatively. And at some point, countries may have to figure out how to deal with this reality. Do they hedge and try to find a third way? Do they ally with the United States against China? Do they side with China? Because trying to walk a fine line between the United States and, and, and China, in my mind, is probably a losing position because then they will suffer the, the costs of, of from both and the benefits of neither, ultimately, that the, the United States will smack them around, the Chinese will find out. We'll try to push it as hard. I mean, one of the, the big policy changes of the past five years, I think, has been the Chinese have gone, okay, well, we're going to take the gloves off. And people thought that we were going to rise in a velvet kind of way. Well, forget about that. We're going to smack around people if we feel like smacking them around. And so the question then for Europe, because that's where the, the balance of power really is going to be, you know, other countries can't swing. India is not going to swing towards China. 
Japan's not going to swing towards China. South Korea might. Australia might. And Canada's not going anywhere. But Europe as a continent or individual countries such as Germany and France have choices to make. And I'm reminded of a lyric from a, a favorite Canadian song, which is, even if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Absolutely, yeah. And so far, I mean, this is an emerging issue, right? It shouldn't be an emerging issue, but it's still, I think, in Europe perceived as an emerging issue that is kind of put on the agenda by the U.S. in China, but not necessarily by Europe itself, right? So we're, we're presented by, with two perspectives, from the Americans and, and from the Chinese about... A, the strategic reshuffling and what it means for Europe. And I think clearly, I mean, Europe is kind of, well, in between, right? So maybe some, some sort of a tipping point in between uh, the decay of the US hegemony and the, and the new Chinese hegemony versus like, some sort of new form of bipolarity and where would Europe uh, stand in either situation. What is tricky is, and I think that's, that's just like playing in the same dynamic as the one I was mentioning before about some sort of return of not, not necessarily even nationalism, but just national conceptions of interests. Mm -hmm. And so if countries do define their interests nationally instead of like doing it collectively at the European level, then obviously they're going to go in all directions. And what we see already with Greece and, and, and uh, I mean, mostly uh, Italy, uh, joining the Belt and Road Initiative, or, or Greece, or even the Netherlands, or even you know, other parts of Europe where you have ports being being bought by by China, that it's again like each one is spending for themselves, and you know you have economic needs. Will you find anyone to to buy, pay for whatever you need to pay? So the problem is indeed what are the long term consequences of of those uh, divisions and and of this uh, Chinese strategy. Uh, what if tomorrow Europe wakes up and uh, realizes that half of the continent is kind of dependent on, on China for the good functioning of its infrastructure and, and uh, right. So, so that's obviously very, very strategic. And I think you do have countries indeed making, not necessarily making decisions because again, because of trade interests, the relationship with China is so vital that you can't take a very, very strong position, but what, what you can do is you can have your green lines and your red lines, and you can say, at least my red lines are the respect for international law and the freedom of the seas, and so, you know, and we're going to support the US. Now, I'm just speaking for France here. Uh, France is going to support the US in, in um, ensuring freedom of navigation, etc., in the South China Sea, because, you know, at least you can, this you can push, because you have law on your side, right? And the other things of, um, you know, critical infrastructures and or um, network, um, like the 5G networks. This is a bit trickier because it's a subjective judgment, right? How much do you bet on the future that things are going to remain okay? I think Europe needs to be very, very careful. And I think I support, and again, maybe that's a very French vision, but I support the notion of Europe taking a third way mm -hmm. to, which, to which Canada could join. That would not be necessarily the US uh, position because we because Europe doesn't have the same military means mm -hmm. because Europe doesn't have the same geography of being isolated uh, like the US. It's more obviously interdependent with countries like Russia and then the whole Middle East and Asia and North Africa. So you have to deal with your neighborhood in a way that is maybe a bit more compromise based mm -hmm. than the US, right? But at the same time, you don't want to be the victim of 
any other external, especially after 50 years, 70 years of being, of having your security be interdependent or dependent on some external power, which mm -hmm. was the US. And we can see now how it can be problematic to have such dependency. So I would not advise Europe to fall into another type of dependency on another external power, especially when we have such opposed views of human rights, uh, democracy, uh, individual freedoms. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, at least I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think you've got some really interesting work ahead of you. Thanks for talking about Rhythm, and we look forward to promoting your book when it happens. Hopefully. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm getting really tired of this pander train of people selling their souls out to China for a few extra bucks. Two items in the news. Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets basketball team, tweets support for Hong Kong protesters. And he's immediately at risk of losing his job. And he now publicly regrets his tweet. The NBA has been in an uproar over this. It has led to China and Chinese companies cutting access to NBA players during the exhibition tour and risks the NBA's ability to make money from Chinese interest in North American basketball. Uh, fans at NBA games in the United States are being kicked out for protesting China. So much for free speech, it's all about commerce. Similarly, and various animated movies have included maps of Asia for some reason, and these maps lately have included the nine-dash line that represents China's expansive claims to the South China Sea, claiming parts of the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, and others. This is an obvious attempt to pander to the Chinese marketplace. This is not new, of course. Uh, the remake of Red Dawn had the bad guy switch from being Chinese to North Korea late in the game, so that way the movie would sell in China. But as Canada's learned with the Huawei extradition controversy, Working with China is a very, very problematic endeavor. The Chinese are super sensitive and are quite willing to use their leverage as bluntly as they see fit. So I have to ask, does it make sense to sell one's soul for uncertain profits? I get it that movie companies want to sell to China because many movies don't make much money, so every dollar is pursued. I'm less sympathetic with the NBA as owners are billionaires and the players are millionaires. A small cut in their profits does not bother me much. Nor should it bother them since they're not in danger of going out of business. How rich do you have to be? This is a problem for the NBA. It's a problem for Canada. It's a problem for every country dealing with China. China's an unreliable trading partner, and they quickly flip on a dime if you've said something that bothers them. Until China grows up, maybe we should avoid selling our souls to get in their marketplace. Maybe we should just wait a little bit and see if they can stabilize and develop a reasonably thick skin because we all get criticized and we all just have to move on with it. China needs to learn the same, and until they do so, let's think about what it costs to get into that marketplace. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.